Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, Esther chapter 8. We ended last time about halfway through chapter 8 of Esther and things are starting to move very rapidly now. And like it is with so many Bible characters, when we take the scriptures for what they actually say and we add in the cultural context and the known history of the time period, we see a bit different Esther and Mordecai than what we typically see in films about them or even in sermons that invoke their names. Esther, although not an ambitious woman or seeking to be royalty, nonetheless became Queen of Persia and there's not a whit of information in the Hebrew Scriptures that would suggest that she was a reluctant queen or someone who despised her position. Most sermons regarding Mordecai are about identifying him as a biblical example of fatherhood. And yet there's almost nothing about Mordecai's parenting in the book of Esther. Rather, we have found that Mordecai seemed to be all for Esther becoming the queen and that he was neither an impoverished nor an oppressed man. In fact, he was Jewish royalty. He was in King Saul's family line. He was well known in the capital city of Susa, Shushan, and he was a recognized Persian government official who sat nearly daily at the king's gate. It was a gate with privileged access only for the king's court and for aristocrats. Now, where some of these contrived characteristics of Esther and Mordecai come from are these extraneous Greek texts that we've read and they cannot be accepted as valid. They are stereotypical Greek drama added to a Hebrew story of a real historical event. Their goal isn't to demean Esther or Mordecai, but rather to add a, a, a sympathetic element to the story and to add in mention of God that is otherwise absent. <clears throat> And while no one knows for certain when or where these Greek editions were made, who made them, for the most part the rabbis like them because the Gentiles are made out to be wicked barbarians and Esther and Mordecai pious and unwilling victims. Indeed, the wicked Haman, bearer of the spirit if not the actual genealogical heritage of Amalek, well, he intended genocide upon Mordecai and the Jewish people primarily as a means to both retrieve his lost honor and as payback for an insult. But we see no other person in our story that had any evident bigotry or distaste for the Jewish people who lived in the Persian Empire and this virtually represented all living Jews except for the handful who had returned to Judah. King Xerxes seemed to have no personal prejudice against the Jews. There isn't a whisper of such a thing from any of his court. And we don't read of outright oppression from the general population of Persia. Thus we need to notice how one man with enough influence can move an entire nation to commit the worst atrocities. There is no better example of this than our day in modern times than Adolf Hitler. And yet, as we'll read shortly, there had to be an underlying but unseen anti-Semitism among some in the Persian Empire because many Persians were going to attack the Jews per Haman's decree and many of them would die as a result. So let us be acutely aware that the right person at the right time can tap into a hatred for the Jews that seems tamped down 
And then suddenly, like a pool of fiery lava that lay dormant and silent and undetected for ages, it erupts without warning and all hell breaks loose. And the results are catastrophic. Let those who have an ear to listen hear. Let's uh, reread Esther chapter 8. I'm going to read it from the Jerusalem Bible with now the Greek editions. This will be different from what you heard last week, which was only the Hebrew version. That same day, King Asuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the persecutor of the Jews. Mordecai was presented to the king, Esther having revealed their mutual relationship. The king, who had recovered his signet ring from Haman, took it off and he gave it to Mordecai, while Esther gave Mordecai charge of Haman's house. Esther again went to speak to the king. She fell at his feet, weeping, imploring his favor to frustrate the wicked scheme devised by Haman the Agagite and his plot against the Jews. The king held out the golden scepter to her, whereupon Esther rose and stood face to face with him. If such is the king's good pleasure, she said, and if I have found favor before him, if my petition seems proper to him and I am pleasing in his eyes, may he be pleased to issue a written revocation of the letters which Haman, son of Hamadatta, the Agagite, contrived to have written to procure the destruction of the Jews in every province of the realm. For how can I look on while my people suffer what's in store for them? How can I bear to witness the extermination of my race? King Asuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, I for my part have given Esther Haman's house. I've had him hanged on the gallows for planning to destroy the Jews. You are free now to write to them as you judge best in the king's name and seal what you write with the kid with the king's signet. For an order written in the king's name and sealed with his signet is irrevocable. The royal scribes were summoned at once. It was the third month, the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And at Mordecai's dictation, an order was written to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the administrators of the provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. These letters, written in the name of King Asuerus and sealed with the king's signet, were carried by couriers mounted on horses from the king's own stud farms. In them, the king granted the Jews in whatever city they lived the right to assemble in self-defense with permission to destroy, slaughter, and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them together with their women and children and to plunder their possessions with effect from the same day throughout the provinces of King Asuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is Adar. The text of the letter was as follows. The great king Asuerus to the satraps of the 127 provinces which stress stretch from India to Ethiopia to the provincial governors and to all our loyal subjects. Greetings. Many men repeatedly honored with the extreme, by the extreme bounty of their benefactors only grow the more arrogant. It's not enough for them to seek our subjects' injury, but unable as they are to support the weight of their own surfeit, they turn to scheming against their benefactors themselves, not content with banishing gratitude from the human heart, but elated by the plaudits of men unacquainted with goodness, notwithstanding that all is forever under the eye of God, they vainly expect to escape his justice so hostile to the wicked." Thus it has often happened to those places in authority that, having entrusted friends with the conduct of affairs and allowing themselves to be influenced by them, they find themselves sharing with these the guilt of innocent blood and involved in irremediable misfortunes, the upright intentions of rulers having been misled by false arguments of the evilly disposed. This may be seen without recourse to the history of earlier times 
crimes in which we've referred, and you have only to look at what is before you at the crimes perpetrated by a plague of unworthy officials. For the future, we will exert our efforts to assure the tranquility and peace of the realm for all by adopting new policies and by always judging matters that are brought to our notice in the most equitable spirit. Thus Haman, son of Hamadatha, a Macedonian, without a drop of Persian blood, and far removed from our goodness, enjoyed our hospitality, was treated by us with the benevolence which we show to every nation, even to the extent of being proclaimed our father, and being accorded universally a prostration of respect as second in dignity to the royal throne. But he, unable to keep within his own rank, schemed to deprive us of our realm and of our life. Furthermore, by tortuous wiles and arguments, he would have had us destroy Mordecai, our savior, our constant benefactor. With Esther, the blameless partner of our majesty, and their whole nation besides, he thought by these means to leave us without support, and so to transfer the Persian Empire to the Macedonians. But we find that the Jews marked out for annihilation by this arch-scoundrel aren't criminals. They are in fact governed by the most just of laws. They are sons of the Most High, the great and living God to whom we and our ancestors owe the continuing prosperity of our realm. You will therefore do well not to act on the letters sent by Haman, son of Hamadatha, since their author has been hanged at the gates of Susa along with his whole household, a well-earned punishment which God, the ruler of all things, has speedily inflicted upon him. Put up copies of this letter everywhere. Allow the Jews freedom to observe their own customs and come to their help against anyone who attacks them on the day originally chosen for their maltreatment. That is, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is Adar. For the all-powerful God has made this day a day of joy, not of ruin for His chosen people. Jews, for your part, among your solemn festivals, celebrate this as a special day with every kind of feasting, so that now and in the future, for you and for Persians of goodwill, it will commemorate your rescue, and for your enemies may stand as a reminder of their ruin. Every city and more generally every country which does not follow these instructions will be mercilessly devastated with fire and sword and made not only inaccessible to men but hateful to wild animals and even birds forever. The text of this edict to be promulgated as law in each province was published to the various peoples so that the Jews could be ready on the day stated to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers mounted on the king's horses set out in great haste and urgency at the king's command. The edict was also published in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the royal presence in a princely gown of violet and white with a great golden crown, a cloak of fine linen and purple. The city of Susa shouted for joy. For the Jews there was light and gladness, joy and honor. In every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and decree arrived, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting, holiday making. Of the country's population, many became Jews since now the Jews were feared. few extra words added there. <clears throat> Notice that the Greek edition to chapter 8 is essentially the supposed text of the edict that Mordecai and Esther created, which authorized the Jews of the media Persian Empire to arm themselves to assemble for their self-defense. Now this letter goes so far as to tell the Gentiles of the empire that they should not act upon the previous edict, something which in itself lacks credibility because this is a direct statement of revocation of the previous order. The very one that King Xerxes says he could not undo it. That is, the king said he could not, he would not. 
revoke the previous edict. So Mordecai and Esther were to find a different solution. And here in the supposed body of the edict are the words, You will therefore do well not to act on the letters sent by Haman son of Hamadatha since their author has been hanged on the gates of Susa with his whole household, a well-earned punishment which God, who is the ruler of all things, has speedily inflicted upon him. Now there are a lot of problems with that statement. First, as was stated in the scriptures, the first edict was not sent out under Haman's name. It was sent out under the king's name. Second, Haman wasn't hanged, impaled on the gates of Susa. He was hanged on a tall pole in front of his home. Third, the pagan king of Persia calls the God of Jews the ruler of all things. Really? I don't think so. And fourth, he specifically orders his subjects not to obey the first edict. Other than for the sake of historical interest, the Greek edition just can't be taken seriously and we ought to disregard it. So, where we are is that Esther and Mordecai have miraculously become a powerful Jewish team in the Persian court and their Jewishness is well known by all. The king seems to have pushed Esther to the forefront, probably more than Vashti ever experienced or maybe even ever wanted. Esther has proven herself to be wise and adept at navigating these shark-infested political waters of Persia. And yet, she's not one who had personal ambitions or, or displayed a desire to usurp the power of the king. Mordecai holds all the power that Haman used to hold. And as a result of Esther putting him in charge of Haman's former estate, he's become a very wealthy man. Yet the Jews of Persia are still in a dire circumstance, just as they were before Haman was executed and Mordecai assumed power. The edict for their annihilation remains in force. The good news is that with the exception of a revocation order under his name, the king has told Esther and Mordecai they have carte blanche to find a clever way to mitigate the coming empire-wide attack of the Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year. So, in verse 9, on the 23rd day of the 3rd month of the year, the royal scribes were summoned to write down the decree that Esther and Mordecai had devised to end this genocide threat upon the Jews. Now, ought not to pass our notice that exactly 70 days have passed since the original edict was pronounced. 70. As earlier in Esther, we saw a series of sevens that made it clear that all that was happening was God orchestrated. So now, with the ten times multiple of seven, seventy, appearing, we have further confirmation that the timing of the second edict was divinely ordained. God's fingerprints are all over this story and the event, and even if we don't find direct mention of his name, as the dubious Greek editions try to remedy, Now Mordecai dictates, the scribes write, and then the edict is translated and transcribed into all the languages of the empire, including the language and script of the Jews. They are sent to every province and district throughout the vast media Persian empire using the epithet from India to Ethiopia. And just to be clear... Exactly as it was with the edict that Haman wrote, verse 10 says, This went out under the king's name. The signet ring that the king first gave to Haman and is now possessed by Mordecai represents the king's name and authority. So it's not as though the king actually signed his name to either edict. Well, verse 11 sums up the message of this new edict. The Jews have royal permission to fight for their lives. But there is a condition attached. They may fight for their lives only if they're attacked. And if they're attacked, they are given full right 
without repercussion or restraint to not only kill their attackers but to kill all the women and children associated with those attackers as well and even more the Jews may plunder the belongings of those they have killed. So remembering that only 70 days have passed since the first edict in which we're told it unnerved the citizens of Persia to no end. I mean, murdering the Jews is nothing they sought to do or wanted to be involved in. When they get this new edict, it instructs the Jews to do to any who might think to attack them exactly as the first order, order first edict ordered the Persians to do to the Jews. This was nullification without revocation. And it was obvious to everyone. However, there were further caveats to how the Jews could react and defend themselves. The battle was only to occur on one day. Just as the Persians were to attack the Jews only on one day, the 13th of Adar, so the Jews could only attack their attackers that same day and not thereafter. Now remembering that this is happening in the Middle East where blood vengeance was normal and customary, a date limit was established so that vendettas wouldn't get out of control and that bloodshed would be, wouldn't become an endless back and forth. Now as I mentioned, the people of Persia fully understood that the goal of this new edict was nullification of the previous one. And each Persian had to understand that this was the case because the only alternative interpretation was that the king had set up a kind of nationwide gladiator event pitting the people of Persia against the Persian Jews and this for some unknown cynical reason. Well, that didn't make any sense. And there's no suggestion in Persian records of such wanton barbarity by the Persian kings. Well, this new decree was sent out in urgent haste, says verse 14, using the royal mail system. Now, some scholars estimate that since that empire stretched as much as 2,000 miles from Susa, it might take up to three months for every corner of the empire to receive that royal decree. So verse 15 tracks, backtracks a little bit now. It takes up the issue of Mordecai and his commanding new position over the Persian Empire. He's given royal robes to wear as an honor of his high position. He is cheered by the citizens of the capital city of Susa. The residents, meaning all the ethnicities, cried out joyously that Mordecai was the new chancellor and that the new edict meant that they wouldn't have to do the unthinkable, kill their Jewish neighbors and friends. The Jews, of course, were overwhelmed with this good news and a feast and a holiday were declared. But understand, the Jews although perhaps a couple of million strong and very well represented in the empire, they were a distinct minority. The Gentiles controlled the society and the economy, and it was they who declared the holiday and provided the feasts. Again, we must view this in light of both the biblical and non-biblical evidence that the Jews were anything but an oppressed minority. They were accepted, welcomed. They were part of a normative Persian culture. Now while it's my speculation, I also think that the open affection displayed by the Persian public for Mordecai was real and it wasn't contrived. It's unimaginable that the people of Susa had very much love for Haman I mean, such a self-serving man who used his vast wealth to just vault over others to get the king's ear and to essentially buy his way into power probably hadn't made very many friends. His advisors seemed only to be his direct family members. Even when Mordecai is chastised for refusing to bow down to Haman, he's not told it's because Haman deserves respect, but rather because not doing so puts Mordecai's life in jeopardy. Now, I suspect Mordecai was quietly applauded by thousands of secret admirers and was looked upon as a man of principle who was unafraid to put his life on the line for what he believed in. So the final words of this chapter say 
that many Gentile Persians professed to be Jews because the fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Let's talk about this. There's much more expansive uh, and deeper issue present here than it might seem. Here is a direct reference in the Old Testament of people of other races becoming Jews apparently in large numbers. But what exactly does that mean? How did they become Jews? What did it mean to be Jewish? In reality, the Hebrew term Yahad is used here to speak of people from many ethnic groups in Persia professing to be Jews. And it's probably better said in English to mean they Judaized themselves. And while in Christianity, Judaizing has been made into a negative connotation, it's certainly not meant in a negative way here in Esther. This doesn't mean that the males were necessarily circumcised. And if they were, it doesn't mean that they left their old racial and tribal identities behind and became Jews. Rather, Yahad, in this usage, has the sense of taking up the religion, maybe taking up the lifestyle, of the Jews, but not changing their ethnicity and certainly not their nationality. See, this process and preference of becoming Jewish is different from what we saw long ago before Israel was conquered and scattered 250 years earlier. And then finally Judah was conquered and then exiled a little over a century before the time of Esther. Back then, when the Jews lived in their own sovereign homeland, if a Gentile foreigner became a Jew, that meant they became a Hebrew. That meant they wished to join their genes to the Hebrew gene pool. That inherently meant that they indeed gave up their former nationality or, or tribal affiliations and they identified themselves as gen- when they identified themselves as Gentiles and they became more than merely a citizen of Israel or Judah. They identified themselves completely with every aspect of Israel's present and past and they become part of, they became part of Israel's future and their destiny. So, in Babylon and then Persia, what did it mean to be a Jew? Especially after two or three generations in exile. Mordecai and Esther called themselves Jews, yet we've already learned they were from the tribe of Benjamin. Back in Judah, a Jew was essentially a person from the tribe of Judah even though that had evolved somewhat into including Hebrews from other Israelite tribes who had moved to Judah and declared loyalty to the king of Judah. And since Mordecai and Esther were born in exile, and since Judah had ceased for a long time to be a nation or a kingdom, then for Mordecai and Esther, being Jewish couldn't mean seeing themselves as citizens of a Hebrew nation called Judah because it didn't exist. So what made them Jewish in their own eyes? Was it because their family used to live in Judah? Was it the religion they practiced? And if so, what that would that Jewish religion have looked like now up in Persia? since the religion that was practiced back in Judah completely revolved around the biblical feasts, the Shabbat, a temple, and a priesthood, none of which was operable any longer. And as concerns verse 17, in what sense did these Persian Gentiles become Jews? As we read about at the end of Esther chapter 8. Now this all might sound like a bunch of non-essential stuff that only a professor or a rabbi ought to care about. But believers, unless we can get a handle on this, we can't possibly hope to understand what a Jew was and is. What Judaism was and has become. And what religion it was that Jesus participated in 
during his lifetime. Knowing this as best we can provides a lot of needed context. Now I've spoken a few times on the matter of Jews and Judaism and what those terms mean. So maybe this would be a good time to take a a detour and discuss it yet again because it's as pertinent to the book of Esther as it is to us today in 2014. So let's begin with the concept of Judaism as we think of it today. Judaism is a religion. Just like Christianity is a religion. religion. Anyone of any race or ethnicity can practice Judaism just as they can Christianity. And Judaism is a religion that is a mixture of part man-made tradition and part obedience to the biblical commandments. And the proportions of each that form that mixture is dependent on which sect of Judaism someone might follow. And it's exactly the same way in Christianity. The least spiritual, least biblical, most casual kind of Judaism is called Reform Judaism. Reform Judaism doesn't adhere to rabbinical law. It also doesn't follow the Torah and doesn't necessarily even believe in the spirit world or that the Hebrew Bible is any more than Jewish philosophy. It involves some mild form of deism where most Reformed Jews believe in some sort of higher intelligence in the universe but not necessarily of a God-centered intelligence as we might think of it. Reform Judaism doesn't usually see itself as a chosen people or a set-apart people, nor do they feel much connection with or, or need for the Jewish state of Israel. Reform Judaism is a product of the Enlightenment era. And the goal was essentially to make Jews less separate, more like Gentiles, less mystical, more practical in their religious beliefs and their observances. So while they'll observe Jewish traditional holidays, it's mostly as a means to show itself as a concerned part of the local community. It involves little to no spiritual elements, and it is generally an acknowledgement of being Jewish from some cultural standpoint. At the other end of the spectrum, of the religion of Judaism is the ultra-Orthodox. They fastidiously follow rabbinical law. However, which rabbinical law, under whose authority, is what divides them into a few different ultra-Orthodox factions? Their holy book is the Talmud, not the Torah, not the Tanakh, the Old Testament. It's not that they deny the inspiration of the Torah or the Tanakh, but rather that the Talmud interprets the Torah and the Tanakh, and for them it puts it, it gives them applications that are pertinent to their lives. These applications are in the form of rules and regulations devised by rabbis over the centuries that they call halakha. We call it rabbinical law. And because there is currently no temple and no priesthood, something that is central to the true biblical Torah life, they've transferred their civic and their religious loyalty to the laws and rulings that those rabbis have created. The ultra-Orthodox observe the biblical feasts fastidiously, the Shabbat strictly, but they do so far more based on tradition and halakha than biblical ordinance. They also take the command to be ye separate literally. And they have set up their own ultra-Orthodox communities. For them, their identity is expressed in their dress and in a very rigid system of behaviors. And for them, This is what defines them as Jews. 
Thus for the ultra-Orthodox to be Jewish is to practice Judaism and especially their form of Judaism. Then we have completely secular Jews like many of the so-called Hollywood Jews who are unapologetic atheists. They see their Jewishness as simply a matter of fact of family ancestry. Their parents, their grandparents were Jews, so they're Jews. And there's no getting around it, although some have tried mightily to obscure and disavow their Jewish heritage. How their Jewishness manifests itself in their lives varies. Sometimes it's like just belonging to a club or a fraternity. Sometimes it matters not at all. At other times it's just an unwanted burden. Then we have a few thousand Gentiles of various ethnicities and races around the world who Judaize each year, to use Christian lingo, and they become Jews. Interestingly, what is required to become a Jew isn't clear-cut. Mostly, it's a repudiation of being a Gentile. What is required, we don't, it varies. But we don't have to, and regularly it's not necessary to declare any loyalty to the God of Israel. One important requirement, however, is that one must not believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. You do that, you can't be a Jew. So from the worldview of the rabbis and of the Israeli government, being a Christian and being a Jew are antagonistic to one another. Being one disqualifies you from being the other. Thus, even a person born in a Jewish household with Jewish grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on, is, as far as the chief rabbis of Israel are concerned, no longer Jewish if they accept Yeshua as their Messiah. They see that person as having renounced their Jewishness. Now, this leads to a question that is so basic and yet so complicated and undefined then what is a Jew? Is it a race? Is it a religion? Is it a nationality? I'm asked some form or another of this question all the time. And it's a very good and important question because it has biblical implications and contemporary applications. The issue of Jews and Jewishness will dominate the Bible including the New Testament, from here forward. And the best answer I can give you is that being a Jew is first and foremost an identity. I've taught you that what makes a Christian a Christian can be boiled down to our identification with Christ. It doesn't matter our former attachments. It doesn't matter our heritage, our race, our nationality, our former religion, our sex. All that matters is who we have decided to identify with. And if that decision is Yeshua, then we're a Christian or a Messianic. It's the same thing with being a Jew. It's all about identification. So the first thing for us to grasp is that Judaism, a religion, and being a Jew, an identity, are separate issues. You can be a Jew and you can have no religion whatsoever. That is, you can be a Jew and not practice any element of Judaism. In fact, you can be a Jew and completely renounce Judaism as long is you don't adopt some other religion in its place, then you can still be accepted fully as a Jew. You can be a fully, fully a Gentile today, become fully a Jew tomorrow by agreeing to assume a Jewish identity. And the definition of what that amounts to will depend on the particular rabbinical council that judges you on the matter. The Jewish conundrum of who and what a Jew is 
is evident in our story of Esther. And it's why I've chosen to go on this extensive detour to discuss Jewishness. See, my research over several years has led me to conclude that without question, the religion of Judaism, as well as the primary religious expression of Judaism, which is the synagogue, were born in exile in Babylon and in Persia. That is, the religion of Judaism, hear this, the religion of Judaism did not exist until after Judah had stopped existing as a Hebrew nation. Rather, the Jews who lived in the Hebrew nation of Judah practiced a religion that I label Hebrewism, in order to give it a word, because it was based around the ideas of Abraham, the first Hebrew, the Torah, the laws of Moses, the temple, the priesthood. That's what defined Hebrewism. Judaism, however, was a man-made response to the Jewish exile's impossible position of wanting to remain loyal to the God of Israel on the one hand, but having no nation, no priesthood, and no temple on the other hand. And by the way, this is exactly the same position modern Jews have been in for over 1,900 years. Let me say this another way. What the religion of the citizens of the Hebrew nation of Judah consisted of before Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah and what it consisted of while they were in exile changed drastically. But the next question is, well, what happened when these Jews in exile returned home to Judah? History and the Bible show us that rather than revert to the way that they practiced their worship of God in their pre-exile days, when many thousands of Jews finally returned to Judah and they rebuilt the temple and they reestablished the priesthood, they brought their new religion of Judaism home with them from Babylon and from Persia and they mixed the old with the new together to form yet another variation of religion and worship. But, just as important, what the definition of a Jew was before they left Judah for Babylon and what the definition of a Jew was after they returned was substantially different as well. What happened was that away in exile in Babylon and Persia, this notion developed that prayer and meeting together as a congregation could become the new means to righteousness and atonement. They could attain this then without the temple, without sacrifice, without a priesthood. When they lived as a nation of Jews in Judah, there were no houses of worship where they congregated. In fact, technically, such houses of worship were forbidden. Because the Torah explicitly says there's to be one place where Hebrews were to assemble and pay honor to God. The temple in Jerusalem. Of course, central to paying honor to Jehovah was sacrificing on the altar of burnt offering. But what do you do when you are in exile in a foreign land? When the temple and Jerusalem are destroyed, the priesthood is defunct, and yet you remain a Hebrew who continues in your allegiance to Jehovah. You know what sin is. You know that when you sin, you must be atoned for, or you carry that burden of guilt indefinitely. But what means is there now to attain atonement under these circumstances? So from their viewpoint, the Jews in Babylon and Persia couldn't eat properly kosher food. They couldn't ritually cleanse themselves per the Torah instructions. They couldn't atone for their sins with the only means the Lord gave them to do so, 
Animal sacrifice on the temple altar with a, uh, in Jerusalem with a Levite priest officiating. Since the first day of their exile, there was no operating priesthood to teach and remind them of the law, to enforce the law, to perform the required rituals of the law. And humans being human, the Jewish leadership began to devise ways around this serious problem as they saw it. Prayer became the new means of atonement. They naturally met together as like-minded believers to pray and to worship God and to remember the scriptures. And eventually the size of the groups needed designated places to meet, designated leaders to lead. There had to be some repeatable order to the service to avoid disagreement and chaos. Someone and something had to determine what was appropriate, what was inappropriate in their lives, in their worship. There had to be a system of leaders and a hierarchy to achieve some measure of uniformity. So while many pious Jews hung firmly onto their Hebrew faith and onto their Hebrew God, just like Esther and Mordecai did, a new system of religion evolved that we call Judaism. And so even with the opportunity to return to Judah from Babylon and Persia to rebuild that temple, to reestablish the priesthood, only a handful of Jews elected to do so. Why? They didn't see the need. This new religion, this Judaism, this was all they'd ever known. None of them had ever lived in Judah. They'd never even seen the temple now laying desolate. They had never been to the altar of burnt offering. They had never presented their sacrifices of atonement. Rather, in Babylon and Persia, they created a new system of religion that in their minds, it solved all those issues of kosher eating, atonement, purity, proper worship practices. What was the point of going back and rebuilding the temple? solved all those problems themselves. Judaism had no ability to have a central house of worship so it incorporated many houses of worship around the Persian Empire that eventually came to be called synagogues. Synagogue worship was necessarily different than temple worship so it involved hundreds of new customs and practices that did not require the temple furnishings or a priest to preside over it. This new religion called Judaism and the accompanying synagogue system fundamentally redefined Jewishness. Now I'll give you an awful lot to think about. So let me clarify and summarize. There were no such things as synagogues with non-priest leaders of worship while the Jews were still living as a nation in Judah. There was only the temple. But in between the time of Nebuchadnezzar's conquering of Judah and their exile to Babylon, and then their return in mass to Judah to rebuild the temple and reestablish a predominantly Jewish presence in Judah, the synagogue system and a religion called Judaism was born. And we read of it at every turn of the page, it seems like, in the New Testament. And if you know what to look for, you'll notice that the synagogue was often antagonistic to the temple and to the priesthood. They didn't much like each other. Even the creation of the Sanhedrin the Jewish religious court, an institution that was separate from the priesthood, was a byproduct of Judaism. It had little to do with the Torah. It never existed until after the Jews were exiled and then returned to their homeland. So back to our initial question. What did being a Jew mean to Esther and to Mordecai? What did being a Jew mean to a couple of million Jews who were dispersed throughout the Persian Empire? 
What did it mean to the many Jewish, uh, rather many Gentile Persians who decided to become Jews? When Mordecai's edict was circulated and it was learned that Mordecai the Jew was now the second most powerful man in the empire. Esther and Mordecai no doubt practiced some unspoken form of whatever Judaism was in their day. They also had a distant blood relation to the other, but not all, Jews in the empire. Yet there was no tangible national connection because Judah didn't exist during their lifetimes. They were born in exile. Certainly the label of Jew also had a definable meaning to the Persians because a person could be singled out as a Jew. Or if a person identified themselves as a Jew, it meant something to that Persian Gentile. Ethnic groups did then, as they do now, tend to band together in ghettos or communities. And the words of Daniel and of Esther and of non-biblical historical records prove that the Jews indeed banded together in communities within the many Gentile nations wherever they found themselves. There had also been a substantial mixing of the races by then. So one could no longer judge entirely by skin color or head shape or other physical features and say, oh, you must be a Jew. Probably a Jew was mostly identifiable as Jewish by his or her traditional living practices, their methods of worship maybe, what village or enclave they were known to live in, as well as maybe a personal and public declaration of their identity as a Jew. So as we're soon going to finish up, the book of Esther, and then we're going to move right into Ezra and then Nehemiah. And as we study other books of the Old Testament from around this period of time, or the books of the Apocrypha, and then especially as it pertains to the New Testament, understand that being a Jew or what Jewishness amounted to and how this new religion of Judaism operated and how it splintered off into sects and groups formed the essential backdrop and the context for the days of Yeshua, for the days of the disciples and the apostles. Christ railed against many elements of the Judaism of his day. He railed against the many man-made traditions that was its backbone, essentially arguing that a true Jew would not practice many of the elements of the popular Judaism of his day that had ventured so far away from the Word of God. I wonder what he would say if he wandered through the door of many of our modern modern churches or messianic synagogues today. I wonder what he would say. I wonder if he might recognize what had become of the true religion as taught in the Holy Scriptures. We're going to get back on track and begin Esther chapter, uh, chapter 9 next time.